Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Lada Alleluia Daish, scientist at RFF's sister institution, the European Institute on Economics and the Environment. Lada and two co-authors have just released a new study in The Lancet Planetary Health on the connection between air pollution and climate change. Specifically, the study shows how policymakers can most effectively accomplish two goals at the same time, reducing the air pollution that contributes to millions of deaths per year and achieving our long-term goals on climate change. It's a fascinating piece of work, so stay with us. Okay, Lada Alleluia Raish from uh, CMCC, EIEE, RFF, our sister organization based in Milan, Italy. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. And um, Lada, we're going to talk about a new study that you have co-authored with a couple of colleagues, uh, Laurent Drouet and Massimo Tavoni, whose names I have probably mispronounced horribly, and for which I apologize. Uh, the, the new study is called Internalizing Air Pollution, Health Economic Impacts into Climate Policy, a global modeling study, and it's out in the journal The Lancet Planetary Health. Um, so we're going to dig into that paper today, but we always start by asking our guests how they got interested in working in environmental issues, either as a kid or, or later in your life. So what drew you into this field? Yeah, so I, I think I've been always interested in environmental issues ever since I remember, basically. I think family probably plays a role in there, but I was also at school during the 90s where all these problems started. You know, there was people talking about ozone layer and global warming, and I was actually in the nature club at the school. We, we were out uh, saving nests of birds. And so it was always some, I don't, I don't know, for me, environmental heroes were always the coolest. Uh, and for me, it was always something that I was out there. So when I, 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 decided, I decided to join the environmental engineering course in the, in the new University of Lisbon, there was a branch on uh, urban planning. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do because I get to be a little bit outdoors and it's going to be fun and it's, in, it's creative and it has to do with the environment. But when the time came, that I had that course, I actually hated it. It was all about legislation and what you can't do this and you can't build here and you have to do that. And so I really hated it. But at the same time, I was having this other course on environmental uh, statistics. And a lot of it was data applied to air pollution. So I, th I really liked it. And I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, I, have it, I had it all figured out by then. I thought, I, I still get to be outdoors. I'm going to send out balloons in the atmosphere and get to read vertical profiles, and this is going to be fun. Well, that didn't work out either. I started being more and more um, uh, interested in modeling, and I, I had so much for the outdoors spending time, and I, I just spent my, all my time behind the computer doing environmental research. But I actually don't regret it. I like it a lot. <laughs> That's great. Well, at least maybe you can take your laptop outside sometimes, right? And, and work outdoors. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, as I mentioned at the outset, you and two co-authors are out with this new study. Uh, it's, it's focused on air pollution and climate change. And uh, it's a really fascinating and, and complex piece of work. We've talked a lot on the show about climate change and air pollution, including recently with another excellent Portuguese researcher, Inés Azevedo. 
But can you tell us how this new analysis differs from some others, particularly ones that focus on climate change and which typically consider air pollution mitigation as what's called a co-benefit to climate? So how does this analysis differ from, from many of those previous pieces? Yes, yeah, so you're right. So mo most of the studies out there, they look at climate policy and then kind of as a post-processing step, a step afterwards, they assess the co-benefits, actually not just of air pollution, many other types of co-benefits. Uh, there's many great studies out there. That, but in this case, what we do is that instead of assessing the co-benefits, we integrate the air pollution in impacts into the decision. So in a way, if you want, instead of assessing co-benefits, we are optimizing co-benefits. So what happens is that when you integrate the, the air pollution damages into your decision, you have to achieve the climate goals at the same time as you're trying to avoid these damages. So the policymaker will choose technologies that have synergies between these two goals. So in a way, the co-benefits are optimized, if you will. So let's think, for example, about the case of biomass. So if you think only from a perspective of climate change, biomass is a very uh, helpful and viable technology, but it may create air pollution damages. So what we're trying to do here is to take both into account and counterbalance all these trade-offs between both of, of objectives. So when you do that, we, when you by incorporating this in the decision, the policymaker will have all this information and will be able to act on it. The other thing that is innovative in this study, I mean, at least at global scale, not at local scale, this has been done, but at like in a global scale in terms of climate change is that including climate change, is that we include in the study the opportunity for the policymaker to use end-of-pipe measures. So end-of-pipe measures are, say, technology that is put in the end of the production line that only prevents pollution, say, gas and particulate matter, so PM, to go out into the atmosphere. So it, it's not changing fuels, it's not changing uh, technologies, it's not doing anything for climate change, but it's indeed avoiding uh, the, the impacts of air pollution. So it's, it's called end of pipe, it's something that you put at the end, and these technologies are much cheaper than changing the energy structure uh, of the system. So the, the, in this study, the, the policymaker will try to maximize the welfare of his region at the same time that is balancing these two objectives and has these two possibilities when it comes to air pollution mitigation. That's great. Um, really interesting uh, way to approach the, the problem and really you know, centering this issue of, of air pollution right alongside the climate change problem. Uh, the the methods that you carry out with your authors in the study are complex. They're multi-layered. Um, we don't have time to get into all of them, of course. But can you sketch out for us like a brief overview of how you kind of methodologically carried out the analysis? Yeah, so let, let me try. So we have three models here. One, we have a main model, which is the model where all the decisions are made. So the policymaker, as I said, is trying to maximize the welfare of its region. And in this model, there's a representation of the energy system. So now energy and production and uh, industrial activities, they emit. They emit air pollutants in, and greenhouse gases. And so what we do is that we add a little model, uh, an air pollution model that takes these emissions, calculates concentrations. From the concentrations, we can calculate mortality due to air pollution. And then these mortality uh, numbers are given an economic value that is then given back to the main model, the model where the decisions are made. So now the policymaker knows that 
polluting will cost him uh, lives that have an economic value. And so he will, he will be forced to act on it. So as I said, he can act on it by changing the energy system, which are generally more costly measures, or by introducing uh, end-of-pipe um, controls. Um, the other thing we do is to add yet a little, a little model. These are all reduced models um, that calculates climate. And this takes into account not only the greenhouse gases, but also the air pollutant uh, gases. And it calculates temperature at the end of the century. So when I have a climate target, a temperature climate target, I need to, to, to take into account also the aerosols because aerosols also account for radiative forcing. So in order to have all that incorporated, we include these two other models that kind of speak to the policymaker, the model that makes the decision. And so the policymaker will have all this information both on climate and air pollution, and he will be able to maximize his welfare based on this, all this information while achieving the climate goals. Right. That makes sense. And just one follow-up question on the uh, health analysis. So you include mortality effects, right? Which is which are deaths essentially. Do you also include morbidity, which is things like you know illness and you know people missing work and things like that? Yes, that's a good question. So in this study, we don't. We the way we account uh, kind of account for that is that uh, we we do a big sensitivity, uh, a lot of sensitivity on on the way we value health, improved health. And the way we estimate this 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 um, this value of health, so directly we don't have this, but our sensitivity kind of accounts for the variations that morbidity and productivity loss could make to the to the decision. Right. Great. Okay. Thank you for that. So let's get into some of the high level results now. And of course, I'd encourage people who really want to dig into the methods to to read the paper, which again is called "Internalizing Air Pollution." Health Economic Impacts into Climate Policy, uh, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. So what are some of the uh, emission scenarios that you modeled, and what are some of the key results under those different scenarios? So we did a lot of, in, of investment in the number of scenarios we modeled in this paper. The reason for this is that we have two goals, right? So, And they are influenced by many, many aspects. Of course, we cannot control and do sensitivity on all the aspects, but we wanted to include the main drivers. So we have five baselines. So these are called the socioeconomic uh, shared pathways, the SSPs. And these, these are baselines that uh, differ uh, on their socioeconomic drivers, such as population and GDP. But most importantly for this study, what, what they do change is that they assume different baselines on air pollution emissions. So we will see for each uh, SSP a different baseline, um, of, uh, pollution baseline. So that's why it is important for us to, to, to kind of spam all these possible futures of baseline air pollution so that we know that our results are robust across many, uh, across all these assumptions. Um, on top of that, we study two climate targets, so the two degrees, so an increase, a, a global average increase of uh, 1.2 degrees by the end of the century, and the well below two degrees here in the study modeled by the 1.5 temperature target. On top of that, we model a delayed action scenario. So what happens if we delay climate policy uh, a little bit, like by 10 years, by 20 years? What happens and what is the value of including uh, the air pollution impacts um, in the decision 
when we delay the climate action. And we also model um, a lot of ways in which we could value the improved air pollution. So uh, a lot of ways in which um, one region values uh, their own health improvements. So what we find is that we could save by 2050 around 1.6 million uh, people um, just by incorporating uh, air pollution impacts into the decision. This is about three times more the, co the simply co-benefits of air pollution. Uh, the, and this is robust across all uh, our, um, our underlying baseline assumptions. We find also that when we look at our delayed action scenario, so if we delay climate policy, then it is really important to include air pollution impacts into the decision because if, if we're not decarbonizing already in, this, in the first decade, then there's really a lot of lives that could be avoided. And then it becomes really important to include the health dimension in the decision. And we find, so literature says there's a lot of debate on, on, uh, on the way we should and how we should include the, the, the way we value uh, improved health. So we did a lot of um, sensitivity on this value. It indeed changes the global uh, avoided mortality. But we find that the, the, the sensitivity of changing this value on how we value life is less important than, for example, the variations that we found in changing socioeconomic parameters such as GDP or even what we assume as already deployed air pollution controls. Mm. That's really interesting. And, you know, for those who are following along at home with the paper, um, figure two has some really nice illustrations of the, those ranges that you're, that you're talking about based on the different sensitivities. And um, just one clarifying question. You said 1.6 million deaths uh, by 2050, I think. And that, that's an annual figure, right? 1.6 million per year? Yes, that, that's in, in, the, in that year or around that year, we, we would find that estimation, yes. Right, great. So can you talk now a little bit about the geographic distribution of uh, the benefits, the, these air quality benefits, um, just kind of how they're distributed around the world, which regions benefit the most, which benefit the least, and, and how does that look on the map? Well, thank you. Thank you for that question. Actually, we well, we find that, first of all, all the regions benefit. So both in terms of, of uh, avoided air pollution, absolute numbers, as well as in terms of uh, economic benefits. So all regions improve uh, their welfare when we include the air pollution impact uh, into the decision. This is uh, robust across all the policies we, we've seen. We have regions in terms of absolute numbers, such as China, the reforming economies in India, that see most of them uh, big numbers in terms of avoided air pollution. But when, we, when it comes to the economic value, so when we look not only uh, at the, the absolute number of avoided premature mortality, but also at the value that we give to improved health, there's another region that comes, uh, that, that pops out, which is the region of the Middle East and, and North Africa. And this region typically objects or has many say, puts many barriers to climate policy. But what we find here is that this region ha actually has a lot of interest in, in reducing, um, in engaging in, in, this, in this type of climates. So if we take into account air pollution damages, the Middle East and North of Africa should for sure uh, be pushing for these kind of policies. Well, that's really interesting. And, and a couple just quick follow-up questions. The first, you said reforming economies, I think, earlier. is that Are those like former USSR nations? Exactly. Sorry okay. if I didn't. Yeah. No, that's fine. I imagine that's the a term maybe that's used widely in Europe, but, but not so often here in the US. And then 
maybe digging in a little bit more deeply into the North Africa and Middle East region, can you talk a little bit about what the drivers of those health damages would be? Is it like, I know they use a lot of oil uh, and petroleum products for power generation in that part of the world. Is that one of the major drivers of air pollution? Uh, yes. Um, yes, for sure. I, I didn't look uh, specifically at what uh, what uh, technology switch were happening there, but that's for sure a region where there's a lot of extraction uh, of oil. Uh, and, and because their VSL value, that is the value per statistical life, that is the value that you give to improve uh, health due to air pollution, is not very small. Just by acting and saving a few lives, they would have, they would see a lot of economic benefits. I see. That's interesting because it's a relatively high income region, at least for, for some of those nations. Yes. Medium, medium region. Yes. So. Right. Great. So um, let's ask a, a sort of a policy question now, which is, um, you know, sometimes when decision makers are trying to solve one problem, they might accidentally exacerbate another, right? This is the law of unintended consequences. Um, but if, uh, so I'm wondering how that applies to this analysis. You know, if we optimize for air pollution, does that mean we're sort of losing benefits related to climate change mitigation or does it go the other way? So, you know, are there trade-offs here that we need to be thinking about? Yes, indeed there are. I mean, it's, it's known in literature that aerosols with reflecting properties, they cool the earth. So... Particulate matter, which is an air pollutant, PM, they are aerosols. So when, we're, when you are tackling the air pollution problem, you, you provoke a little bit of warming. That means in order to reach that temperature target, you have to decarbonize a little bit more. But our methodology, as I explained before, takes into account this feedback by, by our climate model. So even by taking into account, our results show that you should act on air pollution. So what I'm trying to say here is that by no means air pollution jeopardizes the fight of climate change. What we find is actually the reverse. It's like even despite this trade-off, we should still be tackling air pollution at the same time that we, we are achieving the, the climate targets. On another note, what we also find is that so most of these end-of-pipe uh, technologies that I explained, these are technologies that I use to remove air pollution but do not remove greenhouse gases, they are deployed at the beginning of the century when the transition is still ongoing. There's not a lot of yet, a lot of decarbonization done. So in order to, to help there, we could deploy this technology. And these are in the early years of the, of the century. Because air pollutants are short-lived, these reductions that we see at the beginning of the century won't affect a lot the, the, the temperature in 2100 when, when our climate targets are. So our framework kind of takes into account this intertemporal, um, um, this intertemporal interaction and allows for saving a lot of lives now at the beginning of the century, which won't jeopardize then the, so much the, the, the climate target at the end of the century because these are short-lived gases. Um, and this is, this is something that we find that is also important. So indeed, there is a little bit of extra effort on decarbonization, but this won't in any means uh, jeopardize the fight of uh, climate change. This, this impact is little. That's really interesting. And just so I have a little bit of intuition about these end-of-pipe technologies, would one example be like scrubbers on a coal-fired power plant that reduce air pollutants but don't necessarily reduce greenhouse gases? Exactly. So scrubbers, electrostatic precipitators, filters, all these type of technology that are easier and cheaper generally, uh, generally speaking, to, to deploy, 
um, they won't switch any fuel, they won't switch to less carbon intensive technologies, but they will help us prevent uh, impact, the impacts of air pollution. Right. Great. And these are technologies that are largely deployed in, in the United States and in many parts of Europe, but, but less so around the world. Is that right? Exactly. That's exactly in the case. So um, this next question is a really hard one um, because there's so much variation in policies around the world, both with regard to climate change uh, and with regard to air pollution. And there's so much variation in the fuel mix, as we've been talking about. So, so I recognize that this is a tough question to ask. But when you kind of step back and think broadly about this paper and what it might tell us, what are some of the key lessons for policymakers that you think emerge? Yeah, that's indeed a tough question. But, well, I think, I think what comes right away is that we should be deploying this end-of-pipe technology and we should be deploying all over the world as fast as we can. We should be implementing best available technologies and practices to reduce air pollution. We've seen from this, the results of this paper that this can avoid a lot of economic impacts and a lot of mortality. The other thing I think uh, there's a policy message here is that Policymakers should be targeting technologies that maximize co-benefits. If we think back on the case, the example I gave about biomass, if we only look at one objective, we might be creating other problems. So here again, I think this paper emphasizes the, the role of, of maximizing co-benefits in choosing technologies that ha actually have co-benefits. The other thing I think it's quite clear from this paper, and I hope it will stick, <laughs> stick out in policymaking, is that it, generally, we should be integrating health, the health dimension into the policy design. This is, is proved to be important. And I think, if anything, this pandemic has shown us that this is so much the case. Then, of course, there's many, many things that could be done that we do not tackle in our paper. I don't know, even easy things like uh, improving air quality information and awareness, where this will help people not to mitigate so much, but uh, actually to avoid exposure, which will avoid ultimately death and loss productivity, productivity loss and all these kind of things, amongst many other things that could be done. Yeah, that's really interesting. What are some of the mechanisms you have in mind for you know better information, sharing better information about air quality? Here in the United States, we have sort of air quality alerts that are sometimes issued by governments. But we actually did an episode recently with a researcher named Eric Zhu who found that you know local governments actually sometimes strategically report air quality um, for for complicated kind of policy reasons. But I'm just curious what what you had in mind as some mechanisms for informing the public about air pollution risk. Oh, that's a good question. I'm not an expert at all, but I think um, citizen science has a role here. We see uh, all over the world big projects and efforts um, by using these low-cost sensors that everybody would carry around or have in their home uh, um, to measure air pollution themselves. And this, for me, has a big role. Um, it has a big role in, a, um, in putting out some of the problems that might be there in reporting, also because the instruments that I use for, for the official reporting are very expensive. They, they cost a lot of money, they need to be constantly calibrated and so on. So it's quite of impossible to have um, a wide network uh, graded data on this. Um, satellites have helped a lot. And I think the, the citizen science uh, on monitoring devices and low-cost sensors, we really help with this, could really help and are a big, a big, big step into, in, in, into lowering... Uh, exposure from air pollution. 
Yeah, that's a great idea. And it makes me think of this you know, network that, I, that I'm a part of. I have one of these sensors at my house, the, the Purple Air Network. If people are curious, check out purpleair.com. And you can see sort of particulate matter exposure, not just in the United States, but also in Canada and in Europe. There's a pretty extensive network of these sensors all around. So one more question, Lada, before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, and this is a wonky one, so um, uh, hoping you can maybe get into some weeds here. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you estimate the health impacts in the analysis? So kind of take us under the hood a little bit and help us understand how you know climate change might either directly or indirectly affect people's health. Um, you know, with regard to heat exposure, or cold exposure, and then how does air pollution affect people's health in your model, either directly or indirectly? All right. So just to clarify, I don't calculate directly climate damages um, uh, in this study. So by achieving the temperature targets, we assume we are doing that already in order to avoid major damages. So damages will still exist, but we do this to avoid major damages. And then, of course, climate policies will have a role in the damages here as well, because as you're investing in decarbonizing your economy, you're using also cleaner technology. And while you're using cleaner technology, you need less end of pipe, let's say less extra end of pipe, uh, and you have less costs from air pollution damages. So the policymaker will see, okay, I'm decarbonizing, so, but I'm also... I am achieving this goal, but I'm also contributing to the other goal. And this is an important thing. The way specifically we model or we take into account um, the economic impacts of, of, of air pollution is through something called the VSL, the value per statistical life, which is kind of a value that gives us an idea of how we measure improved, uh, how we value improved air pollution. Okay, so we have this, we have to meet this energy demand of this region. There is this economic and industrial and, and, and energy activities that emit both greenhouses and air pollutants. Uh, emissions are then used to calculate concentrations. Concentrations are then mapped out, mapped with, with population because, I mean, if you have high concentrations where no people live, you won't have a impact. So it is important to kind of map both together to get exposure. From exposure, we have an impact function that gives us um, how many people died due to this, this exposure. And then this, imp this, this, this number of, of people, the premature mortality, is given an economic value that goes into the model. And so the decision maker uh, will know, okay, it costs me, and will try to avoid this, uh, these damages. So this is how the damages are calculated. So of course, you can then invest in, in, in end of pipe, which won't help his other objective, but you can also invest in changing the, in accelerating the decarbonization, which will help both, both objectives. Um, I have to say here also that the VSL, so the value per statistical life, it's extrapolated across the world. Um, so not every region, we don't assume that every region values improved um, health due to improved air pollution the same way. And this is actually, for me, um, a very good point of future research, is that how, how do we know this? How do we know uh, and how do we extrapolate these values? How do we know how each region will... Um, currently values the improvements in health, but also will value in the future this improvement. So this for me, 
this extrapolation both in time and in space of this value per statistical life is a very important topic. Our results, we did sensitivity on that. Our results seem to show that at the global level, it doesn't change much, but at regional level, I'm sure this will um, change a lot. Yeah, that's such an interesting topic. And like, the, it gets so deep, like morally really quickly, right? When we think exactly. about the value of statistical life being different in, in one country relative to another, that's totally something we should explore on the show. And I'd love to, you know, have you back to talk about that in the future, if you're up for it. We'll, we'll have a paper on that. Oh, cool. Soon. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Well, uh, Lara, hallelujah, Daish, uh, thank you again so much for coming on to the show and telling us about this really fascinating work. Um, it's, it's really interesting to learn about. And now let's ask you the last question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard. It can be related to the environment or even just tangentially related to the environment that you think is really great. So uh, Lara, what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Well, I, I would I would um, recommend the, the book called The Invisible Killer. It's about it's by Gary Fuller, um, and it's about air pollution. It's about the, the the history of air pollution, and for us now, it's it's so so direct that smoke is bad and that it provokes air pollu uh, uh, premature death. But at the time, it was really I mean, in order to arrive here, it took really a lot of time and uh, a lot of effort and and it, it kind of the author kind of guides us through this process of recognizing that air pollution is a problem and that affects our lives and so there's a little bit of history of air pollution there i think it's a very easy book to read i would advise that the invisible killer great that sounds fascinating thank you for the recommendation i i gotta check that out well one more time lara hallelujah daish thank you so much for joining us today on resources radio we really appreciate it thank you You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.